This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. All right, let's start here. Uh, Yesterday, big, big display, for sure, at uh, John Fisher Public School. And I'm hearing there's going to be more um, today. Um, Here's what's going to transpire. Uh, There's going to be protests at John Fisher outside. Here's the kicker. For the teacher who's been uh, suspended and sent home. You've heard this case of uh, the accusation of anti-black racism at this school involving the mother and a six-year-old for uh, that context. I I don't want to say that side because I don't want to bring a side, but um, um, of that that nature, we're going to talk to somebody at 730 who basically backs the mother. I don't think there's another way to put it. Um, But there's going to be protests for the teacher and also – Against the teacher, potentially. Now, the for the teacher is interesting because these are the um, parents in the classroom. I remember this happened when I was in fifth grade. I only went to a private school one year. And in November, all of a sudden, there's only like 13 kids in the class. And all of a sudden, the teacher's gone. And our French teacher, Mrs. Canham, has become our regular teacher. What happened? I don't know anything about this. We were very much out of the loop. But the parents had got together. Five or six parents had got together and said, we don't think that she's teaching properly. There was no scandal. They were just like, um, we're, we don't, we're not seeing the results two months in to fifth grade with 13 kids. So they went to the principal and said, get her out or we're out. I don't know what on earth was happening. She seemed like a nice lady to me. I'm 11. And I had some terrible teachers prior to that. That was in, in the elementary system. Probably that was a big reason I came to a private school, had a couple friends there. Didn't like it that much. Went back to the public system at a new school in grade six, seven, and eight and had really good teachers. Bottom lining this story is that there's um, definitely a groundswell of support for this educator. Listen to this gentleman outside a John Fisher Public School talk about um, the quality of this teacher. And he drops in a nugget near the end that shouldn't matter. It shouldn't make any difference. And I didn't know about it. Uh, as we went on the air yesterday, and it wouldn't have changed a word that I said because I wasn't factoring in anyone's race except the race of the six-year-old. Why is the race of the six-year-old important? Because they say it is. Here's the parent outside. We do believe that the teacher is a wonderful teacher who has never showed any kind of discriminatory bias towards the black, other black children in the class, but also the other racialized children in the class. And the teacher himself is a racialized gentleman. Well, isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know what that means. I know I, I, I'm assuming the first thing I thought that popped into my head, and you tell me if, if you feel any differently. Okay, it's a non-white teacher. And I think to myself, damn it, damn it, damn it. And I, I'm not going to make the case that other white people and white educators didn't bring us to this system where somehow that matters. Not just that it matters, but somehow it's one of the most significant data points of this entire situation is that the teacher is racialized also. I All I can assume is that's not white. You would never describe me as racialized. Okay, I'm all right with that. But similarly, if this teacher was white, I wouldn't be more suspicious or less suspicious of the disciplinary tactics that were utilized. I, w- I said, what did I say yesterday? Don't, and I didn't, I didn't even give a flip and don't about the skin color of the teacher. I care about the discipline level. If they lock the kid in a closet, if they locked, if they if they shut him in a dark room for five minutes, let alone an hour, 
let alone 20 minutes in the meet us in the middle here on this, then I think the teacher shouldn't shouldn't be an educator anymore. That's what I think. That said, there's always not necessarily another side to it, but more context to this. We have to start holding the higher levels accountable and superintendents have to be held accountable. They get told certain children are violent. They get sold, told certain children are threats. And there's just the same rhetoric with teachers. Well, do what you can and handle it. If this child was being a danger to others, he can be placed in a room, but not locked up. There is that distinction. Every teacher I spoke to yesterday said, we can't put our hands on kids. They're allowed to just destroy the classroom, throw scissors, turn over desks, break windows, yell things out, and we can't touch them. But guess what? If two kids were fighting, they'd come in, grab the kids, and split them up like an NHL linesman. What is this? That's not That shouldn't be standard operating procedure. Where a kid has a meltdown, hey, let's evacuate the room and let the kid destroy it. I don't know that that was happening with this particular situation, but we've got to fix that. We've got to circle back and go a little more old school and say, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to threaten other kids. You're not allowed to be violent. You have to come out of that classroom for a period of time longer than 20 minutes if all these things were going to happen here. So um, let's see where the story goes today. We'll be talking to Charlene Grant at 730 uh, for Parents for Black uh, black education. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. This story has obviously raised just a lot of alarm bells. It, to be honest, I think the board has already weighed in. We read you uh, board spokesperson's Ryan Ryan Bird's comments yesterday. On Thursday, March 2nd, TDSB staff learned about reports of serious acts of anti-black racism at John Fisher Jr. Public School. No child should experience what has been reported, and we apologize for the impact it has had on the student and the family. The word coming to me is that there could be protests at the school today, both in favor of the mother and the student and some in favor of getting the teacher back in the classroom. So this won't go away. I don't know if it's beneficial that we're having conversations at the minimum about it, um, but it it stems from a really rough place for this family. There's no doubt about that. Charlene Grant is co-founder of Parents of Black Children and is kind of to take some time uh, to join me now. Charlene, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Where Where's the mother's um, mindset at? It's um, you, you breathe really deeply before you, in essence, go public with something. It's one thing to say it to your friends. It's one thing for, for you to have a conversation with her. Um, where is she this morning after a, a news conference yesterday? And obviously a lot of support, but also a lot of scrutiny. She's, she's exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been carrying this for a very long time. She's also in fear of for her child who is still going to school. She's been attacked online and from other educators at the school who's given her the cold shoulders. It, it's been quite challenging for her and her son. And her son still doesn't want to go to school. He could feel it. He could see the stress on his mother. So as you can imagine, this is not an easy time for the family. Would you recommend to her that, that she not go back to this school? Do you think um, that it's, it's too far gone right now to, for her to trust that all the right things are going to happen if, if the kid goes back? It's a tough call black parents mm-hmm. have to make. I'll be very honest with you. This is not the first time um, that we've had seen family remove their children from school because of anti-black racism. And in a situation like this, the mom has to work. The mom has a very demanding mm-hmm. job. And it's a matter of where does she go next? And it's not a particular school. This is what we see across the province and across the mm-hmm. country happening to our children. 
Um, I know Farida, no one's used her last name, which is good. I'm relieved it hasn't leaked out. I'm relieved people don't know where she lives or who who she is. So her identity has been protected, same as that of her son. But I think it's important to ask, is there, does she have a partner? Is there a dad on the scene that, that has weighed in on this process? So she has a dad. Um, they recently separated, and she has stated that as well. So she's a single parent at the moment. So, yeah. Okay. Some logistics issues. She um, she had a, a tape recorder that he took to school that she put on on the kid, um, on, on her son. I should call her her son, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Did you get a chance to listen to the to the recording? Yes, I, there's multiple recordings because initially when, after the first two weeks of school, when she had her first initial meeting with the first teacher and she brought it to the principal, the principal said, where's your proof? And that's what we hear all the time. Sure. I even see the comments online, where's your proof? Um, we're always told to prove it, prove it. And so with, in fear and disbelief, she installed a camera. It wasn't so much to catch anything from educators it was more to monitor her child because what she was hearing didn't match the child that she has at home yeah i, I can imagine the challenges and and i you know I, i'm white i didn't face near the challenges i'm sure that this mom and, and this child um, had but i remember having huge bullying problems at, for about a seven month span in, in seventh grade and i wish i'd recorded things i wish i'd been able to to prove what was happening. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening of, of all creeds and colors that say, yeah, like they will not take a kid's word um, to, to throw off the infrastructure. And I'm a big fan of educators. My parents were teachers, but I'm tell I felt that pushback as well in, in, in what I was going through. I can only imagine a six year old boy facing the same thing. Absolutely. I'm also a big fan of educator to be very honest with you. I wanted to be a teacher. That was literally my, the, the, um, profession I wanted to go into. So this is not about educators. This is about bad educators and educators who are inept. Um, this is about a child, a six-year-old child. No child should ever have to face that type of um, scrutiny and that type of treatment from any educator. Is there an acknowledgement from mom that um, <laughs> we've, we all go through different phases as a kid? Is he is is he difficult? Is he going through a troubling time right now? Or is she basing this all on this school environment? We all, go, like I said, we all go through waves where I'm a parent. Kids are harder to harder to raise in some circumstances than others, and then it calms down. But we go through waves as parents. Is is she going through a rough wave with her son? Period. Right now, I you know I at at, at one point I probably would have been offended by a question like this, but I think it's a fair question. Okay. I will say that. Um, but he's six. No six-year-old should ever be called stupid by his educator. No six-year-old should ever be isolated. No six-year-old should ever be locked in a room. There's nothing a child could do or should do to be treated like this by an educator. Um, the, the educator is the adult. The educator is the trained profession. You are trained to deal with a child. You are trained to deal with, a, with, with six-year-olds in your class. You're a grade one teacher. Hundred percent. One of the most disturbing things I found, and and it's an allegation right now, is that the boy went eleven days straight down to the office, and and mom wasn't notified. Um, as as many people listening that might be like, well, I'm older school than how we do education now. That that would never ever have happened, and my mom or dad would have been furious that um, that I was sent to the office one day, let alone 11 straight, without a phone call going, we're having some problems here and we need to fix them. That's on the school to do that. But let me say this. 
So because the Minister of Education came out and says no suspension from K to 3, what we're seeing is that schools are doing in-school suspension that are not recorded. So they don't have to report these type of, this type of suspension and these type of, um, um, sometimes they call them, jeez, uh, uh, I forgot the word okay, that they okay. now, but, but they, this is how suspension are now used for kids in these, in these grades. Okay. Um, we've got Charlene Grant joining us, co-founder of Parents of Black Children. I saw a parent document uh, that said the teacher is racialized. I don't know what I, – I, I'm. I, all I know is that that would suggest that the teacher isn't white. Does the skin color of the teacher make a difference here to you? Absolutely not. Um, it's not a – we've seen – other other racialized people have been also can be racist. It is not about we're not saying the teacher is racist. We've never come came out and say the teacher is racist. The behavior of the teacher and the things that the teacher has done is racist. Is there do you think there's more racism in Toronto schools than 20 years ago? More people are just coming forward and we have social media and parents are a lot of the parents that are are parents now anyways with kids of six years old and younger elementary school are parents who have been raised in this system and they understand it better. So they are speaking out more. It's not that it's gotten more, it's more is that more people are coming forward. And is there more training and race-based curriculum than 20? There's certainly more training about equality for teachers. I guess I'm making the case. If, if can we make the case, the training isn't working, it may be working for some and, and maybe it's worth doing if it works for some, but clearly um, it's not, it's not sinking in for some adults. It's maybe making kids of different backgrounds, you know, feel adversarial towards each other. I, I, I just think we need to break this down and look, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And I don't think we have enough conversations about that. I'll tell you this, training alone cannot fix the system. It needs to be a provincial approach. And this is where we call on the provincial government to have a provincial approach from the ministry down to the school and in the classroom as to what needs to happen to tackle anti-black racism, anti-black racism, or any type of hate of that matter. It needs to be an, a provincial approach it cannot be just school by school, mm. class by class, and training by training. That alone won't fix the system. Charlene, I know we're tight for time, but and you are too, and I appreciate yours. Will this boy go back to this classroom if there's a different teacher maybe next week, the week after March break? Um, can we reset this and, and keep this kid at this school? Can this happen? I think we can. I think the fact that Toronto District School Board acted swiftly is a good sign. This is what we we expect. This is the right type of response that is that that is needed. I think you know someone I saw call online for a swift and and fair um, investigation. That's exactly what we want. We want it to be swift. We want a thorough investigation by a third party investigator to uncover what exactly is happening and make sure the right people are in place to. Yeah. Um, Repair the wrong, let's see. Charlene, thanks so much for the time and answering my questions. Um, I, I really do appreciate it, and I hope we can have more conversation. I, I want this to end in the right way for everybody, so I appreciate you coming on today. Oh, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Charlene Grant uh, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. This disturbing poll, as, as much as we talk about the progress and talk about, you know, uh, movement, um, don't like the trend line in this poll whatsoever. No. So this is about um, uh, women's mental health in Ontario specifically. So two thirds, that's 66 percent 
of Ontario, women between the ages of 18 and 35 are living with some type of mental health condition, according to this new poll that was released today. Um, and that includes 30%, 34, so ha- it's half and half, 66% almost, so 34%. Half of those women think are going, I believe they have an undiagnosed mental health condition, and then the other half uh, have been diagnosed. It's, uh, I'm not surprised by this. I think everyone, male, female, young, old, everyone's mental health has been affected in some way in the last few years, and we need to really, frankly, pay, pay more attention to it. What, where I struggle, I don't struggle with the language, and I, I don't question the, the data, but the idea of a condition, if I said I have a condition, I worry some people interpret that as, well, that's almost permanent, like a disease. No, you I, don't? That, no. So it's, I think it's something a, that can be treated and you can move past from very, very quickly. I, I think there's a stigma behind it. The many, anyone talks about their mental health. Some people sort of stiffen up. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Uh, and I think that just it's starting to change very slowly. Slowly, right. Um, and then there are other people who like everything is a mental health condition. So I think they take sort of take advantage of that. Uh, it's somewhere in the middle. So according to this poll, almost one in four percent, of, one in four Ontarians have a mental health condition, a diagnosed mental health condition. So 24% of us. But if I, if someone said, um, you know, this person that we both know, they just went to the doctor and found out they suffer from depression. I worry sometimes that's framed as, well, you were kind of born this way and there's genetics involved. Well, and, that's clinical and depression. That's what I'm saying. I, I worry sometimes that we think it, it, that depression is clinical depression as opposed to you're going through something right now that I'm not going to tell you you, you you shouldn't talk to people about it. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't push through it. But I worry we lean more the one way to make people think that this is part of who you are and always will be. But 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 yes, like we should talk well, about it and the help other you side conquer of it. it. What do you mean what's the other like, side What do you mean? This is, so we shouldn't be telling them this is a part of who you are and it always will be a part of you. Uh, so what should we say? Well, I think you make people feel helpless if you if you say to them, you, you, you're not just going through a tough time right now and a depressing period in yes, your life. There is definitely a difference between the two. You have to learn to differentiate. But there are some people who are clinically depressed for whatever you got reason. It. Absolutely. Their genetics, their history, whatever, some trauma from their childhood. And, and I think those people, people are quick to put them on medication, which... I don't know if that's the best route. And I think always. we do that with kids. I do. Oh, I really do um, yeah. with, with teenagers. And I know. And children. And children. And I, I say this too much. I think we overdiagnose. I think we overmedicate. And definitely remember, these were conversations we had long before the pandemic. And you're making the point based on this data, uh, given where we've gone with the pandemic, that, look, the pandemic just crushed people at different times. I'm I feel like I'm a really uplifting, positive person. And I've had numerous double digit occasions in the last three years where I'm screaming into my pillow where I want to punch a door and I'm like, count to 10, keep it together. Um, you know, sound off maybe to my partner, my wife, but don't let the kids see you freak out. <laughs> that was the biggest thing. No, is like, but I don't see, let I don't... them make you think you're scared because they'll be scared yes, too. You're right. about. But were you ever scared? Yeah, the first month, you don't know what's happening. Okay. Right? The April, April of 2020, April 2020 we were all bad. scared. But yeah. then after that, I feel like we got into a bit of a groove. Most of us, um, but no, I, I don't think I was fully ever scared, scared after April. So, I mean, for me, my com- my conversations with my kids were based around that. There were a lot of conversations going on. But for me personally, I live my, like my number one priority is my mental health above anything. This is above my physical health, above you know, my job, even above my family is my mental health because I can't do any of those other things if I don't have my mental health. So it's like oxygen mask theory, right? When the plane is crashing, you put the mask on yourself, but you put it on your family or your kids. 
for me, that's mental health. One hundred percent. It it it, it ba- you you bathe in how you feel, and and that affects everything you do over and the it course of down. a day. Of it course, tr- it does. I'm tell- it trickles down with every- when when friends call me and they're like, "Hey, I'm trying to lose mm. weight. What should I do?" I tell them, "Focus on your mental health." I, the- I I think there's more than enough. Just just to sum this up, I think there's more than enough times where I think the most frustrating thing of the last three years from a mental health perspective was just trying to have answers because I like to be an answer person. And I, I, if anything, I over promise and under deliver, which sucks. I, I don't like that about myself. So I try not to raise expectations, but when kids say, Hey, when can I play soccer again? When can I go to the movies? When can I stop wearing a mask to school? And I try and give them an answer. And then I'm like, Holy cow, this really isn't up to me. It's real. That, that part was the worst. Yes. Was, so it wasn't like, Oh, I'm scared. I'm going to perish. Yes. Uh, from COVID, but I'm scared that I don't have answers for you. And we, it was really only about like, what, did the mask mandate not get lifted about a year ago right now? And it feels like four years in schools. It feels like four years ago, but it was only a year ago. It was right, around right. last March that we're yes. kicking this around. And we thought we were worried that kids wouldn't come back after March break last year because that's what happened in yeah. January after Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that that would happen. So we saw the the data. And, and again, so much of this uh, on International Women's Day Canada's ranked sixth in women's rankings. Let me read you just what um, this was a U.S. News and World Report scenario. Um, Canada's, uh, oh, the number six in women's rankings. It was number four out of 78 in 2021, which might indicate some slippage, but we're behind four (laughs) Scandinavia, man. Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark are one, two, three, and four. Switzerland's five. But it's interesting that we're ahead of you know, New Zealand or Australia or Germany or Belgium or France. Like we're we're in the United States, you can imagine. Like Sheba, if all of a sudden they transported you and me and the show and all of a sudden we're living in Chicago or especially we're living in a Florida or Texas, I'm not going to lie. Like I think life for a woman is a lot different than it is in Ontario in these southern states. And oh, well, I will absolutely. say it in Republican states. Absolutely. But we've got a long way to go. I mean, let's talk about gender disparity, pay disparity in Ontario specifically. There's still a lot of work that needs mm-hmm. to be done. Uh, but I mean, specifically going back to mental health, what I find interesting about this poll is that it's ages 18 to 35. That's that's what the focus of this is. So what's happening in that age group? And then we see what's happening with youth today. We see what's happening in our city alone with what's happening with 13 year olds, 15 year olds, what they're doing whether it's public transit, whether it's to homeless people, there is a major, major issue happening that I feel like a lot of people are trying to ignore or trying to brush off on kids will be kids or these kids today or social media. And those factors, sure, they all come into it, but there is a major mental health crisis happening. But is there, I I agree with you. When I think about the really violent stories, I'm more inclined to think that there's a knowledge that, that they won't be held accountable for a lot of these crimes. When so what? If you could get away with killing someone tomorrow, are you going to go do it, Greg? No, I'm not. No. No, I'm not. But there are a lot of, And there are a lot of kids who would feel the same way because murder or harassment or uh, whatever it is, physical violence against someone you don't know for no reason is wrong. That's, it's, but it's I know value, it is and you know it is. But it's, your, it's our value systems. So a lot of these kids, I feel like there's more to it. There's They're lashing out in different ways. There was a lot of maybe unsupervision because of uh, the inequality of work that was happening during the pandemic where a lot of parents had to go off to work and these kids were unsupervised doing who knows what when there was virtual school. whatever, Or they just didn't have the support systems or they've lost some. There are a million reasons for or this. Or there's no connection with parents or there's one parent or there's no parents. 
Um, I, I'm still like like it's weird. You start to talk about that and suddenly somebody thinks, oh, this is some kind of right wing instead of left wing talking point that the nuclear family and the home and who and and how it's structured is really important. But who could make the case? You bring up you bring up these stories. If you transport these stories back to 1986 or 19, these are unfathomable stories. Eight girls charged with second degree murder yep. for the killing of a homeless man. And none of them are and most of them aren't old enough to drive. This story never, ever would have happened. And we had maniacs running around. We had Paul well, Bernardo's and Charles okay. Ains and we had all this stuff. So what are we gonna do about it? You brought up the nuclear family, right? It's not like it's not like single women, single moms won't exist ever again. So what are the supports that they need uh to, for these kids to feel supported and not do? All like really this. good questions. And, but it's not just single-parent families. There are nuclear families that these kids are also doing this. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where, yes, that's where mental health, that's where social media, that's where where schools are at. It all ends up factoring in. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Here we go. Um, there will be um, an investigation, but seemingly of the prime minister's own distinction, when it comes to probing foreign interference uh, in elections, a big part of this is what the NDP is going to do. But we've been saying that about a number of issues for a number of weeks. And it all it's all interconnected like a jigsaw puzzle. We welcome on Melissa Lanceman. Uh, she's the deputy leader for the CPC and MP for Thornhill. Melissa, thanks for spending uh, the time with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What's next? What What's next? There weren't firm dates for the prime minister to say, this is when I'm appointing this person. This is when an investigation starts at the minimum with the um, with the inquiry into the Freedom Convoy and the Emergencies Act. There was sort of a set schedule. I, I'm not spotting this here. And I want to know if you were. Well, certainly not. And uh, and, and we're getting now uh, news of a couple of weeks. So this is just a way to uh, to kick the can uh, down the road in a uh, in a way that uh, puts this behind closed doors, secret hearings, secret uh, evidence, secret conclusions, all controlled by the prime minister. And I won't make a special rapporteur joke, yeah. uh, because I think he's made enough of a joke out of uh, uh, out of investigating himself. But I will say this: any kind of rapporteur doesn't have uh, the full legal powers granted by what we call the Inquiries Act. And that means that a rapporteur of his own choosing can't compel evidence. Uh, there is no reason why, you know, CSIS needs to be, uh, 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 frankly, cooperative um, with him because he doesn't have the legal or she, uh, no matter who it is, doesn't have the legal power to investigate this. And that's why it's a problem. That's why conservatives think it's a problem. Uh, you know, the NDP to some extent thinks it's a problem, uh, although they'll probably support this uh, and the uh, and the Bloc Québécois. So that's agreement between all of the opposition parties to say that investigating yourself behind closed doors in secret is not good enough for Canadians. Does, does the prime minister stepping out saying what he said two days ago have more validity if he says it the nine days prior? We went from any suggestion of this and, 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 and it's it's baked into the journalism as well, which. Um, from the Globe and Mail, from from us here at Global News, obviously we're the we're the radio division of Global News. I thought had uh, I thought that was real nerve, real temerity to suggest there, there's racism baked in to the actual investigative journalism. But we went from that to even suggest that that there's there's an issue here is creating anti Chinese racism to let's get on this right away and have an independent special rapporteur in nine days. I don't get it. Well, look that that's 
that's absolute nonsense. It's textbook, uh, you know, liberal issues management of whoever disagrees with you is, you know, is, is either, uh, you know, is either a, a whistleblower that needs to go to jail because we see that the RCMP is now investigating uh, CSIS and not the actual potential of interference in an election. We see uh, claims of racism when you don't agree. To get to the bottom of this, you need a truly independent inquiry uh, with all of the uh, with all of the legality of being able to compel documents to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future, while also continuing an open parliamentary uh, investigation to which the Liberals didn't even show up to committee yesterday. So, you know, it looks like they're hiding something probably because they're hiding something. Melissa Lansman's our guest on Toronto Today. When you look back at the fall of 2021 and, and the run up to the election, a lot of campaigning in the summer, we're voting in the third week of September. And, and you know, word of this starts to sort of drip, drip, drip into into probably your email box. There are no tools email box. If you look back on it now, should should members of your party have have said something? Should you have pointed it out then and got it out into the public eye? in real time and and then let that that let that percolate with the public so they know i i just think the public had a right to know more before and and there were elements of of the knowledge that it looks like your party had would you have done things differently now in retrospect well, you know, I don't know. It wasn't part of the the, the leadership team, so this wasn't uh, you know this wasn't brought to my attention in in a way that maybe it was brought to uh, to other people's attention. And that's not really absolving ourselves of uh, of, of any guilt. I just don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. What I do know is that CSIS. Uh, you know, put out these documents that the best way to counter any kind of interference is to put it out in broad daylight, to shine, you know, uh, to to put sunshine on the thing, to make sure that we are not in another election where this has the potential uh, to uh, A, happen again if it happened at all, and B, we've got to give Canadians the, uh, the confidence that they, that they need in their democratic institutions, making sure that this is a public open inquiry where the prime minister is not investigating himself in secret and then telling you a conclusion. We are way past that. And that's what we're talking about today. Look, the liberals have 158 seats. Um, they, they don't have a majority um, in a vote of confidence. If the NDP and the bloc go a certain way, it, it, is this, I'll ask, is this the biggest gut check yet for, for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP with the confidence and supply agreement? If you really well, I, feel I, I, strongly I, about this, don't you go the other way on this if you're the new Democrats? Yeah, look, I think I think uh, the bloc is uh, squarely on side. They've been raising this issue in uh, in the same way, and I think you see the uh, the wavering that you usually see from uh, from from the NDP. This isn't uh, this can't be about the NDP's political future. It has to be about the best interest of Canadians. And time and time again, we see the NDP backing down to uh, to their coalition partners. And, and if you're the Liberals right now, you are laughing at them. So we'll see if they put their, uh, you know, we'll see if they're put, they put the interests of Canadians first, but uh, we're not holding our breath on that. Do you think their Liberal backbenchers really frustrated by the news coverage, frustrated by what they've learned? They did everything the right way. They may be Liberal MPs in the GTA where we are who did did it all the right way, had no knowledge of this went out, campaigned, shook hands, kissed babies, did everything they were supposed to do. And they're all sort of under suspicion based on what we know right now, which is really unfair to them. 
Yeah, and I think that's the most unfair uh, a, a part of this. When uh, when when the number is a certain number of MPs that may may or may not have been compromised during an election, it casts an aspersion over everybody, and that's exactly why we want to get to the bottom of it. As somebody who sits in the House of Commons, I want to know that everybody is there uh, because they got there by uh, uh, by vote of uh, of the Canadian people and their constituents, and no other way. And the only way that we can do that is a truly public independent inquiry out in the open and at the same time a parliamentary inquiry where the liberals are actually going to show up and not carry water for the prime minister on this one i got one on uh, on the big grocery ceos they're coming to testify to a bipartisan committee on food inflation uh, in ottawa today um the financial post puts a great idea out there a month or so ago i was reading it last night that we could have a grocery code of conduct there are a few european nations that regulate a little bit more uh, what what they have in the grocery industry. Um, is there is there a way that we can just make this about action and not talk in a bipartisan fashion? Yeah, certainly. And, and I know that there are uh, there are there are members of the House of Commons, including those in, in, in my party that have pushed this idea um, for uh, for some time. But we're at the end of the day, we're talking about a, a cost of living uh, crisis driven by. Uh, inflation and uh, and as a result have increased food prices for uh, for for Canadian families right across the board and we've got to get that under control at the same time so we can't ignore one issue uh, and uh, and and blame the grocers entirely because uh, we have a problem where we spent five hundred billion dollars 200 billion of which had nothing to do with COVID and now the check is in the mail and we've got to pay the bill. Melissa Lansman joining us on Toronto Today. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you uh, answering our questions today. Thanks so much.